Welcome to Q Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Thomas. And I'm Nina. And we're your hosts for Q Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Q Talks, we are talking to Nigel Lamb. Nigel is the Executive Director at the Sussex Innovation Centre. Nigel has vast experience with the many different aspects of the business world as a multinational CEO, serial entrepreneur and non-executive director. Nigel specialises in offering strategic direction to startups and scale-ups to raise funding, increase profits and ultimately grow the business. Hi Nigel, thanks for coming on the show with us. No problem at all, it's a pleasure. To begin, do you want to tell us a bit about your background and how you got involved with the Sussex Innovation Centre? Sure, well, I guess my background, I'm slightly unusual in that um, I've kind of done the, the, the big corporate world kind of working as well as working in sort of much more smaller and entrepreneurial businesses. So um, my background, I, I grew up uh, sounding like yourself um, in Dublin. I went to UCD where I did a few business degrees and took a master's in international business and negotiating strategy. I didn't really know quite what I wanted to do. So I spent 20 years basically working in big corporates uh, across uh, different businesses and different sectors for the likes of PepsiCo and Capita and Grampian Foods uh, and kind of really kind of learning uh, from others while I figured out what was the, what was the big idea that I was going to go and launch on my own uh, to do something else. And then uh, a little over a decade ago, that kind of moment came. I decided it was time to go head out on my own and try to do something different. And I uh, didn't really know what to do, is the honest answer. So I, uh, I left working in London because I was, I was uh, tired of getting the, the 557 train out of Hove every morning and wanted to spend a bit more time with family. Uh, so I rented an office and gave myself a year how to figure out how to make a living. Uh, and that basically culminated in a decade as, a, as an entrepreneur and business advisor in and around the Brighton area. And as part of that, I was approached to join the board of the Sussex Innovation Centre, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about. Uh, and they, they, the university owned the Innovation Centre, and they always have uh, one or two local entrepreneurs or local business people on the board uh, to kind of help them guide the, the companies. So I did that for about four years. Uh, I was kind of coming to the end of my term when the, the long-standing chief executive of the Innovation Centre um, decided to, re- to retire and move on. Um, and there was no succession in place. So... I was asked in May 2019 um, to step in for, for a couple of weeks, as it was, uh, to kind of steady the ship while they figured out what to do next. Uh, and I'm still there uh, a year and a bit later, uh, and I'm now permanent and full-time in the position and really enjoying it. That's really, really interesting. Yes, I'm also a fellow UCD alumnus. Always good to have another Irish person on the podcast too. Um, so I suppose then you've obviously um, dealt with a lot of different small companies throughout your time. Can you tell us a bit about your time as an entrepreneur through working with the Sussex Innovation Centre over the last decade? Yeah, so so in my own time, like, um, as I say, I left kind of corporate life in 2009 uh, and gave myself a year to figure out how to make a living. Um, and I, I always wanted to be, I don't think I ever used the word entrepreneur myself. Um, I always just wanted to be self-employed. I wanted my own business. I, I don't know if it's genetics or not, but my father was self-employed all his life, as was his father. But I never really had that big idea. I just assumed, you know, as, as a kind of student of business, someday you'd come along and, you know, in the bath one evening, you'd, you'd work out the idea of the next Google or, you know, the next big thing. But I never really had, had the big idea. 
um, but I gained a lot of kind of management skills working and running other people's businesses. So I, as I said, I just I decided to take a leap. Um, I had a, a small, um, in modern terms, very small uh, amount of cash available uh, and decided to try to, what I thought was a logical thing was to try to buy into businesses or to buy businesses that I could then work in. And just got to give a combination of, you know, I didn't have enough of a pot that I could be purely be an investor. You know, I still needed an income. Um, so I thought the idea of buying into a business that I could help to grow made sense. And so uh, that's really what I what I ended up doing um, directly or indirectly for, for a decade. I started off invested in a single coffee shop uh, in Brighton, um, where I met who, who would then be my longstanding business partner. Um, and I also bought a, a brewery. Uh, an, an old craft ale brewery uh, in in what was craft beer before it was called craft beer. It used to be just called beer, but um, nowadays it has to be called craft beer. Uh, and we managed to grow those businesses quite successfully. Uh, sold the brewery after about three years, and then kind of spent most of my time working on the coffee business, which we grew to be fairly sizable until we sold that in 2015. Uh, and along the way, it's. Um, uh, as luck would have it, just other opportunities came along. I, I guess I was fortunate um, kind of stumbling into the world of, of kind of food and drink and retail is that they're very public businesses. So when you've had one or two early successes, um, you know, everybody thinks you can do no wrong. Uh, so I was very fortunate that, you know, they were kind of very public successes and then a, a kind of a lot of opportunities came along. So I managed to either mentor or invest in a range of pubs and cafes, gin distillery, um, uh, and a few other smaller businesses um and you know some worked and some didn't um but luckily the the balance was on the positive side rather than than the negative and nigel what prompted your interest in this industry of cafes and and breweries i guess there's two things like in my kind of corporate career i was in and around the the food industry a number of times but i'd have to say the very very unsexy side of uh, the food industry and in particular you know not at all um, the craft and the artisan world that I ended up in. So, you know, I, I used to, uh, one of the first you know, sort of major roles I got is I used to run the logistics uh, all across Europe for PepsiCo restaurants um, back when PepsiCo owned KFC and Pizza Hut. So, so very involved in the food industry, but, you know, there, there's very little artisan involved in, um, you know, running a fleet of trucks for KFC. And I also uh, was managing director of a large uh, chicken processing plant for Grampian Foods. So, you know, again, in the food industry, but, you know, so far away from artisan, as you can imagine. Um, but I always, I always liked the, the food industry, and I particularly like the NPD and the creativity of, of developing new products. It's where I spent a lot of my time. And I just always had an interest. Um, bizarrely, as a, two of the things I've, I've kind of had a lifelong passion for are coffee uh, and, you know, really good quality coffee. And, you know, what's now called craft beer. I was one of those who was, you know, ever trying to find the small little bottle shops who would import, you know, some Belgian beer to taste. And uh, so they're just personal interests, if I'm honest. Um, I had no particular expertise in it. Uh, and I certainly, yeah, there was, a, there was a very steep learning curve when you, when you jump out of kind of big corporate world, you know, selling, selling you know, food or, or ready meals into the supermarkets where you're trying to develop a new beer and sell it into your local pub. So, so having made that shift to these artisan industries as you, as you described them what did you perceive were the entrepreneurial challenges of these particular industries be it um, coffee or be it craft beer 
So I think I'd probably break that down to two different sort of categories of things. And th- there was a very specific subset, and, and for me and for people like me, who's coming from a major, you know, from, from a kind of a corporate big company world, jumping into a small business. Uh, and there's just so many things in that that, um, you know, you really have to learn, you have to learn very fast. And then there, there's the, 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 the normal entrepreneurial um, problems that anybody has. So maybe I'll talk about the first uh, initially is, and, and when you look back at it now, it's almost laughable. But it, it's amazing when you've spent, you know, I spent the best part of 20 years in big corporate businesses running, you know, sizable parts of, of their business. You know, I had over a thousand people work for me at one point. Uh, and yet I walked into the small business thinking, you know, everything. And you realize I had never had a conversation about cash flow in 20 years. You know, I knew about investment returns and IOR and net present value and profitability, but we never talked about cash because big corporates just have enough cash. It's never an issue. Whereas you jump straight into a little business and it doesn't matter a damn how profitable it is. If you can't, don't have enough cash in the bank to meet payroll on Friday, nobody's coming to work next week. And so it's little things like that, that that you know you have to do at the very micro level that that a corporate career has really insulated you from. And like I say, it's, it's laughable now. Like, how would you buy a business and not really figured out you need to think about cash flow? But you really don't in a big corporate world, or, or you do it in such a, an aggregated way that doesn't make a difference. And when you get into a, a smaller company, there's so many of those little things that you need to do, and you realize that you know there's nobody else around. You, you don't have a treasury department. You don't have you know somebody who looks after banking. Actually, you know you have to drive to the bank on a Wednesday afternoon and put the cash in yourself, or there won't be enough there to pay your suppliers on Friday. So uh, th- there's a very steep learning curve, you know, coming from big corporate to small business. And, and what I've definitely learned on that is the the some of the big company skills you you learn in your time there, you probably underestimate just how valuable they are and just how much you've learned. But you also massively underestimate all the stuff you don't know that you just haven't come across yet. Uh, and say, so, you know, you have to learn, you have to be very nimble and adapt, adapt to that very quickly. So I think that's a specific thing about you know coming from big company to small company. Uh, apart from that, you know, just just being an entrepreneur, then just you know running a small business, it's just there's so much to do. You know, as so you, you don't have you know uh, the the kind of the divisions of labor of you know having someone to look after your finance and your marketing, your HR and your sales. You do everything, uh, and they're all demanding time. They're all really important. It's all urgent, uh, and so you know probably one of the key things skills of any entrepreneur is that time management. It's figuring out you can never ever get to the end of your list. So it's really just trying to focus your time, making sure you're doing the stuff that will actually make a difference. Yeah, that's really interesting, Nigel. Um, and in, in terms of the specific challenges that maybe come with a coffee business or a, a, a craft beer business, are there any things that now retrospectively stood out for you? If I'm being really honest, I, I was really lucky. So, so uh, you know, we um, have taken kind of separately, like the, the the coffee business, small batch coffee. Um, you know, I met Brad, he founded the business a couple of years earlier. And it was just at the at this beginning of what was known as the third wave uh, of coffee. And this is when the, when the real artisan coffee was coming to a fore. Um, there's a lot of influence come from Australia, some from the US, um, a lot less so from the, from the US. Uh, and people were really starting to appreciate what a good cup of coffee was and what a decent espresso was. Uh, and they were starting to really appreciate the difference. Um, Brad, so my, my partner, he really understood that. He was an Australian. He'd seen that scene develop over there and kind of wanted to come over here. And the business was founded because he was just so frustrated drinking terrible coffee all the time. 
uh, and he just simply wanted to drink something better. So, so he literally said, I can do this better. And he went out and bought a, a roaster machine and started burning coffee for, for a few months and then eventually figured out how to make it work. And so, you know, we were really at the forefront at the time, you know, so the business was established in 20, 2007. Um, so, you know, it was a pretty low time. It was the last recession, the banking crisis. And, and we were kind of ahead of the curve. Um, and you know, in Brighton, there were very few. There, in fact, there were no decent coffee shops. You know, there, was, there, there, there were nice shops. There was no that actually sold what we now consider you know, a good coffee that, that you can get in most places. So, you know, we were at the forefront. We had a, you know, a fundamentally different product that was available anywhere else. And it was the middle of the banking crisis. So, so many other businesses had folded and there was a lot of available property. So we managed to pick up some absolutely key sites in and around Brighton Town Centre. Um, no premiums, no hassle on extremely good rent terms uh, because there was very little competition. You know, we you know, clearly have sold that business now, but you couldn't go back and buy those sites now. You know, they, they'd be so valuable. We were just really looking we were in at the right time. And similarly, in the, in the brewery experiences, you know, we, we picked a great time. Um, I said, I'd, I'd been interested in beer for a long time, and I really saw the the probability that craft beer would become a really big thing. And we bought, you know, a really old you know, traditional ale business and try to modernize a bit. So, you know, we didn't go too far. So let's say, you know, we took our average customer for from mid-60s down to, you know, mid-40s. Uh, and then, you know, the, the next track, track would have been to bring them down even younger. But what we did is we just come up with, you know, new recipes, you know, a much fresher style, you know, trying to add a much happier beer. You know, again, a fantastic brewer there who created some amazing drinks. Uh, and we, we got to all the independent pubs when the craft beer movement was just coming. And we were either creating slightly funkier brands ourselves that, that, that weren't seen before, or sometimes we did own label products for them. And we were always just trying to innovate and create. So, you know, we got a little bit of publicity at the time as we were the first people, um, uh, and you know, this is where you tried to innovate in a boring industry. But it was just, you know, this was um, obviously 2010, you know, smartphones becoming ubiquitous and Wi-Fi was becoming ubiquitous. Uh, so we put QR codes on each of our um, pump clips across the bar. You stand there, which one will I have? The traditional old breweries used to put pictures of, you know, blonde ladies or, you know, something else inappropriate um, to try to sell their beer. But we, we put a QR code, which just popped you to a link of our brewer talking about the beer, like effectively, you know, video taste notes. Uh, and again, you know, not that many people use them, but everybody talked about it. I was just trying to do something different and something creative. Uh, and that really helped us, you know, get, get into a lot of sort of, of the larger pub estates we probably couldn't have got to and allowed us to grow the business very quickly. So you definitely have a vast experience in developing products and with innovation. So I suppose moving from your journey into how you now help others with their journey, we'd love to know more about the Sussex Innovation Centre. So obviously that directly partners with Sussex University. What do you think are the advantages of working so closely with projects and startups coming out of that university scene? Sure. So, so just I get get a bit of context. So, so the Sussex Innovation Centre, uh, we have two centres, uh, one on the university campus in Falmer, just outside Brighton, and one in East Croydon, uh, on the outskirts of London. Uh, within our buildings, we have about 100 active businesses who, who you know, live with us effectively. They rent office space from us, uh, and they're with us all day, every day. And we have about another 100 businesses who are virtual members, who uh, are typically are smaller businesses that drop in from time to time, but are not there with us every day. On top of that, then, we have various support programs. So we help about another 250 businesses in any given year uh, with any you know, a whole range of kind of business growth issues. So that's kind of who we are. We've got 35 people on our own staff, uh, most of whom are business advisors, as they're helping other companies to grow. Um, I, I think the great thing about being part of the university, um, 
firstly, they, they kind of they get it. They understand innovation. They understand research. They understand trying to grow something, albeit that they're also smart enough to realize they know nothing about commercializing things. Um, you know, they, they have a very different mindset from uh, from entrepreneurs. So that, that's why they've set up a, a separate business with its own independent board, which is our innovation center, to really help to commercialize those things. So they're well aware of their strengths and also where we can play a role. And um, the university is, you know, it, Sussex, we're fortunate. It's a very research intensive uh, university. Uh, all scores very high in that in that regard, and has also has some absolutely world class departments. The business school is, is definitely one of the best out there, and other departments um, that may be less obvious, psychology um, or development studies, are again world beating, uh, and have some amazing research which have applications, whether they be commercial or or, or just you know, in terms of rolling them out to a wider uh, user base. So we're really lucky to have that kind of on our doorstep, and as a very very supportive parent, um, one of the things that uh, you know, we enjoy most is when we're matchmaking between university staff and businesses. Uh, and it's in some ways, it's the easiest dating game you'll ever play in that you know, you'll have some fantastic academics who have you know, invented a technology or a know-how. And all they want is a commercial project. It's not even a commercial project to make money. They just want to work with a company in the real world to test stuff out to see if it works, to validate what they've done. And obviously, you know, any sane business is going to want, you know, the very latest ideas, the very latest thinking and things that can give them a competitive advantage. So where we can find ways to, to, mac, to match up industry and academic, um, you know, it, that is kind of where the sparks fly and where the magic happens. And so you know, it's one of the most fun things we do. You know, it's not always successful. Clearly, you're, you're into, you know, very early stage stuff and an awful lot of it won't succeed uh, in the terms of, you know, it may not have a commercial outcome. But I think everybody learns a lot down, uh, from the process and building those links with our, our local business makes our life an awful lot easier. And it's, it's, as I say, it's really one of the, the, the most fun parts of what we do. From, from your perspective, what have been some of the challenges for such an innovation center in enabling commercialization and, and innovation? Um, if we mean commercialization specifically, you know, focused on university Uh, spin-outs. And to, just again, to calibrate it, it's probably about 20, 25% of the work we do is for the university, but 75% are external businesses, although nearly all have a link to the university. So maybe you know, an alumni founder, maybe that they're doing research or knowledge transfer partnerships with the university, or they may be working with some of the university departments on research. But of the spin-outs specifically, the, the, the biggest challenge is nearly always trying to find the market for something clever. When you, you know, we will typically have a conversation with, with an academic who's invented you know, a new way of doing something or a new piece of research or, or you know, a widget that does something or, or more and more these days, an app. And what, what we very often find the conversation goes, they say, I found this app, it's brilliant. It does, you know, such a thing. This, this is what it can do. Nobody else in the world can do this. And, and we will take that into our commercialization team very often and we'll have a look at it and say, well, yeah, that's kind of really interesting. But, you know, there's only one person in the world would ever buy this product and they have no money. So, however, the functionality you've built is really interesting. There's this massive market over here of loads of people who've got loads of money, and they'd love to buy three quarters of it if you could just add a bit of extra functionality. And it's really trying to use what we have in the innovation centers, kind of get great research and market insight skills, and they will have something that they, they you know is brilliant to them because they spent their whole life thinking about it. And it's just actually finding that bridge between actually how do we take this technology, this know-how, into a marketplace where there's enough people who are willing to pay for it. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's a, always a, a very interesting journey. And sometimes very difficult for an academic that may have worked on a project for, for you know, many, many years 
to say, actually, you know, we want to do something completely different with it. And focusing in on the technology side of things that the centre works with, um, as you noted, there's many different startups that works with the Sussex Innovation Centre and there's a very impressive member directory. Can you tell us something about the new interesting tech startups that you've worked with recently through the centre? Uh, yeah, so, like, I mean, there's just so many that, you know, come, come through a door uh, and some of them, you know, are, are, are fleeting. We do a small piece of work for and some stay with us a long time. Um, I, I love some of the kind of the newer projects that, you know, what we're always looking for are meaningful businesses that we think can actually genuinely make a difference to the world and, and how we live in it. Uh, and sometimes that can be very hard to see. And sometimes they're just, either you know, so high tech or, you know, if you start getting into the world of bioscience, you lose me very quickly. Um, you know, some of the things we're working on that I think are going to become more and more important. We've a, we've a great academic, Professor Peter Kruger, who's doing working in quantum research, looking at uh, how you assess the health of batteries without having to open up a battery. I'd never realized actually it's quite difficult from the outside actually know what's going on inside a battery. Uh, and as you can imagine, as electric cars take off, you know, having a way that you don't have to take your entire car apart to figure out if your battery's got a problem. Uh, is, is a pretty key technology and he's world leading in that research uh, and building a business out of it uh, which is pretty exciting and we have other businesses we have uh, one research is heavily involved in medical trials and has been it was the only member of social innovation that hasn't missed a single day through the, the pandemic uh, because they've been working with some sussex uh, academics researchers from the medical school actually trying to develop uh, some research around coronavirus and particular markers uh, that, that they think can help massively the treatment of coronavirus. Uh, so that's obviously very topical. Or, or uh, you know, another business I think is, is set for you know, a very successful future is a company called Alliantist, um, which is a software-as-a-service platform basically managing IT security. I think one of the things we've all learned while we're all able to, to go and work from home very quickly, you know, Zoom has, has saved many a business and enabled us to continue. And um, when we think about the amount of effort we put into protecting workplace IT security, and now everyone's just gone home working their home Wi-Fi, uh, I think we're definitely going to have to rethink IT security uh, in a very different way in the future. One development we have seen in the last couple of years is the emergence of hybrid university private investor funds, such as Oxford Sciences Innovation or Cambridge Innovation Capital. Have you seen this development um, around Sussex as well, and maybe more generally, What is your take on these vehicles? Uh, so the, the honest answer is I'm jealous. I really want one. So, it, you know, I, I think they're fantastic. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And it is um, it, one of the failings, I think, of Sussex Innovation in particular is that we've never had a very clear strategy around how we get funding into the most um, deserving businesses. And it's always been either a piecemeal solution or, you know, we've, we've kind of left it to others to sort out. So uh, definitely one of the things on my strategic list is to put together an investment fund, is to find a way that we can channel the right sort of investment into those you know, most high potential and uh, most important businesses. You know, it, it needs a very different mind frame um, to a traditional investment fund, which is you know, precisely why Cambridge and Oxford set up these, these different funds. Uh, it takes a different type of investor and a different type of management. But I think Sussex would, would really benefit uh, from having one of them. And it's definitely one of the things on my list to, to try to achieve over the next year or so. So maybe if we shift the conversation a little bit to um, advice for upcoming entrepreneurs, what would be your, your top tips for someone who's thinking about becoming an entrepreneur um, and maybe creating a startup? What would you advise 
say a young person just before university or maybe right after university should he or um, she consider? We're on the, the Startup Sussex program, which is a, an entrepreneurship program for um, Sussex students. And we've had some, some fantastic winners out of that. People like Molly Masters and Books That Matter. Um, give her a plug there. If, you, if you're a female who likes reading books, look, look, that, look up Books That Matter. It's a really impressive business. Uh, and another number of others that, that have launched out of that. And I think the, the first piece of advice I'd give to anyone at any stage in, the, in their life or career, to be honest, thinking about entrepreneurship is just make sure you're ready. It's really, really hard. I, I can't overemphasize that enough. It, it, it's not easy. If, if, you, if you don't really want to put yourself through a lot of pain and punishment, go get a job somewhere else because uh, not only will you not enjoy it, but you're unlikely to be successful unless you really are willing to, to put in a vast amount of effort. I, I think from the, the simplest thing I can describe is you know, the entrepreneurial journey is if you think about just the, the emotional roller coaster is you know the, the highs are much much higher you know when you win a deal when you sell a business when, when you launch a new product you know and it's yours and you have developed from scratch and you've you know you've mortgaged your house and you've put everything on the line for it the high that gives you is incredible but by the same token the lows are much much lower than it is you know if, you, if you're an employee in a business um it's just you know, it's personal you know you've put so much heart and soul into something that when it goes wrong and it doesn't even have to be a big wrong like i i used to remember when we were running pubs and cafes like you know one bad trip advisor review like i mean it could ruin your week honestly it would just you know you'd be distraught that you had a customer who didn't enjoy what you've done and so so you know it's, it's, it's such a personal mode of journey and um, that you really have to be ready to put that effort in and be willing to take the, the, the you know the hits as well as uh, as the plaudits and the other thing i'd say is you know don't do it for money you know if, if your objective is only money i don't know going to investment banking or, or something else is probably easier but, you know, the fact is most entrepreneurs don't make life-changing amounts of money and certainly don't do it in a short space of time. But most people who, who have picked, the, you know, that career path really enjoy it. And, are, you know, I think very few people regret starting their own business if they were ready for it and they're in the right mindset. Um, so as long as you want to do it, it's how you want to spend your time and you want to go on that you know, very emotive journey, then great. But, you know, be really sure before you start because otherwise it would be too hard and you will give up. I suppose moving from, you know, someone with an idea on the startup side of things to the scale up side of things and um, the work that you do at the Sussex Innovation Centre provides scale ups with insights regarding growth and strategy. So what would be the most valuable piece of advice you could give to our listeners now that our founders looking to expand their business and move it forward to the next level? Yeah, I, I think that it's from my experience, you always come back to the same thing. So, so particularly as people get, get from you know, that, that startup, you know, that back bedroom business and, and they've grown it and they have revenue and they have staff and they've customers and you know they've gone through those those initial uh, pain points and they're you know they now have a, a an operating profitable business and they're trying to think how, how do we drive it on the easy stuff is getting the right people around you to you know to hire somebody who can do your marketing campaigns to, to get the right finance people around to make sure your balance sheet is okay most you know sensible people who have run a business and have done it for a few years can sort those things out almost always the barrier you come to in terms of scaling a business is the leader themselves. Uh, he or she has to be able to change their role uh, very actively or it won't work. And, and I've definitely seen this many, many times when people have tried and they just can't do it. The, the, the skills you had to go from, from either, either working for somebody else or in the startup phase are completely different the skills you then need and the time you need, to, how you need to spend your time in scale-up. 
So you know, when you want to scale something up, you, you have to spend you know, probably 90% of your day has to be spent doing different things than it was when you were in startup phase. And a lot of people simply either can't do that or won't do that because they can't let go. They can't bring in somebody beneath them to run operations because it's not quite as good as the way they used to do it. Or they can't bring in a marketing manager because the campaign is not just the way that they used to do it. And unless you have the ability to bring people in who are better than you, who you don't feel threatened by, and allow them to do their job so that you can do a new job in leading a growing business, then it never works. And almost always, when you see people, see businesses that, that plateau, and it's nearly always in that kind of summer, you know, in that kind of one to five million range, and they just can't break out of it. It's almost always because the leader says, "I want to change, and I want to drive this business forward." And then they sit down at their desk and they do exactly what they were doing a year ago, and focus on the same KPIs, the same issues, the same process that they did in startup phase. And while you're doing that, you're stopping the business from growing. So definitely to go from startup to scale up, the one difference is the leader has to spend their time doing different things in terms of leading growth than they had to when they were leading the start of a business. And I suppose moving from pivoting in your role as a founder to another challenge, which is obviously the investment side of things and getting you know Series A or Series B funding, what's been your experience with helping founders move forward in terms of getting further investment from people? I think, and even actually, you know, right up to you know very recent times and, you know, through the pandemic, it's still very achievable. I think the, the the one thing that needs to be done is founders will typically always need help translating what they're offering into an investor language. So, you know, founders, because they're so ingrained in their business, will, you know, will see the business from their point of view and they will really struggle to understand why everyone else doesn't get it as quick as they get it because you know, they spent every waking moment of 10 years developing this widget. So they just assume everybody else you know, sees how blindingly brilliant it is in the same way they do. Whereas investors are different. They have a different mindset. They have different objectives. So we undertake you know, a huge amount of work you know, taking an entrepreneur in who has his finished deck ready for investors. And we look and say, wow, that, that's really nice and shiny and pretty, but actually it doesn't answer any of the questions the investors are, are asking in their heads. So, so we think there's just a translation stage from taking that and translating into, you know, with the same message and the same business and the same numbers, but actually into a format where the investors are actually getting what they want out of, out of that presentation. So I think that's the, the, the key thing in trying to find that money is actually making sure you're looking at it through their eyes, not through your eyes, because that's what the investors are going to see. And, and as I'm sure you'll, you'll know and you'll see in you know, endless research, you know, investors really spend about 12 seconds deciding whether or not they're going to get to page two of a deck. So, you know, you really need to, to, to be speaking their language or, you know, if you've got the really, you know, the, the, golden, the, the golden egg or the golden nugget in page 12, you know, most people will never, ever see it. So it's all about making sure you're ready for the investors. And there is money out there. You know, the, the, there's plenty of investment, you know, um, on the smaller scale, you know, EIS and SEIS has been fantastic for raising those, you know, six figure sums to get people off the ground uh, and to get, you know, early stages of development. And, you know, not so much in Sussex itself, because uh, we haven't really developed that ecosystem. Certainly anywhere around London, um, you know, there's, there, there's plenty of available Series A, Series B money uh, for the right ideas presented the right way. And what would you advise are some of the key questions uh, entrepreneurs have to answer uh, with their pitch deck to some of these investors you just mentioned? Uh, so it's all about, you know, looking at the money, you know, What's it going to cost me to get into this, and, and, and where's your valuation coming from? And you know, 
where could it get to? Investors tend not to worry too much about the, 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 the jam in the middle, if you like, the messy bit in between. They're really trying to understand, what am I getting into this at? What's my buy price? And what's my potential sell price? Uh, and so they're their key metrics, really. Is, you know, clearly, they have to love the business. They have to love the, the, the team. But they're secondary. Like, that, that's what they'll spend the second meeting exploring. The first meeting is, you know, is this worth investing a pound for this, this portion of the business? And that's why there's always, you know, a, a, a hell of an argument over the, the valuation, the pre-money valuation is always the first, the starting point of an argument uh, to see if you can get agreement on that, because that's one of the key metrics. And the other one is, you know, if this works, you know, who, who's going to buy it? What are they going to buy it for? And how long is it going to take there? Um, investors only have two metrics, don't forget. There's only two things in the world they care about, and that's money and time. And all they want to know is, I have this pot of money. How quickly can I make it into a bigger pot of money? So, so, so you know, they're their metrics. Um, so, you know, making them understand what's my buy price and therefore, you know, how much am I going to invest for this amount of business? What's the potential sell price uh, and how long is it going to take to get from A to B? And, and if that kind of hits their rates of return and every investor has, you know, something, whether it's on a piece of paper or just in the back of their head in terms of what they want to achieve for a good investment, if you can find an investor that, that's hitting your sweet spot on that, then they'll start talking about, do I like the sector? You know, do I like this team? Do I like the idea? Do I believe they can execute? Is the market there? But I, th- I think they're the questions for the second meeting or you know, the, the second part of the first meeting. The first one is, you know, how much, how long, and what do I get back? Really interesting, Nigel. Maybe a final question to conclude our conversation. We've already heard that yeah, you have a great deal of experience with cafes and breweries. Now, we've, we've mentioned the, the COVID-19 pandemic and the challenge it presents to, to startups. What's your take on the cafe and restaurant and food scene in particular as it comes to a new normal in the, in the COVID-19 world? Um, I, I think we're going to see things evolve really, really fast. Uh, I think businesses and entrepreneurs are brilliant at adapting to new rules uh, and to new constraints. And we think now, gosh, you know, social distancing, surely the pub is dead. But I, I don't think so. You know, I, I think for um, any of you who are kind of old enough to remember back, you know, when 9-11 happened and we had, you know, a, a massive increase in airport security, everybody said, everybody said flying is dead, right? Who's going to go and queue up in an airport for two hours before they get in a plane? You know, it used to take about 10 minutes. Whereas, you know, if, you, if you've been through Gatwick Airport lately, um, you know, the investors behind that business have done a brilliant job. You know, you can now go through faster with a massive amount of security uh, because they've automated things, they've conveyors, they've teams, they've, they've used a huge amount of technology, queuing theory and all that. And actually, it's a far better experience now with much more technology. And OK, that, that's taken quite a long time to achieve. But I, I think pubs will be the same. They, they will learn what's effective and, and what they will work. I, I've been to... Um, I do try to go out and support local businesses. So, so um, purely for research, uh, I've been out to three pubs over the last two weeks. Uh, and one of them was, you know, shields on all the staff, you know, major face shields on all the staff, glasses, perspex everywhere, every, everything divided. And, you know, a very, very controlled environment. Um, I went to another one who clearly was unaware there'd been a pandemic. And that was just business as usual. Come on in and have a pint. Uh, and appeared to make no changes whatsoever. and was not adapting at all. And there was another one that was kind of somewhere in between. So the staff were, were face masked. You had to sign into the track and trace as soon as you got there. You had to book your time in. And there was a reasonable amount of space between the tables. And without a shadow of a doubt, the middle road was by far the most comfortable. That They were retaining some of the, 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 the niceness of hospitality of, you know, 
good friendly staff and, and being able to talk to other people, but still making very clear they were aware and they're making a real effort to control the spread of any virus. And, and to me, that's, you know, I think if those three publicans, you know, spent half an hour going around to each other's pubs, they're all going to go for the middle option because it's very clear that you can be really safe and you can still offer some hospitality. And that's only two weeks in. So, so I think after a couple of months, all of these hospitality businesses will just learn how to work within the new rules and learn how to give a great experience um, while keeping everyone safe and secure. So it's going to be tough for them, there's no doubt. And you know, without getting into a, to a, a hospitality-specific podcast, you know, how everyone's going to deal with the backlog of unpaid rent is a major issue to those businesses because unless that's solved really soon, a lot of businesses will see it's simply not worth reopening. So I hope they get that sorted as a specific issue. But yeah, I, I think you know hospitality businesses are so good at innovating and so good at creating. They see their customers face-to-face every single day. It's the fastest feedback loop you could ever have in developing products and services. Uh, and I think they'll do a great job. And I think we'll be back to uh, a very comfortable uh, environment in pubs and restaurants but in a much more safe and secure and healthy way in the future Nigel it has been a great conversation thank you so very much my absolute pleasure thanks very much to Nigel for joining us on Q Talks this week this podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV and we would like to also say a big thank you to the team at Q Tech who have all been working hard behind the scenes thank you very much for listening And please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us about your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.